Well, it is such a joy to be here this morning with you uh, to worship King Jesus today, uh, the third Sunday of Advent. Over the past few weeks, we've been listening together to God's voice in the book of Micah. If you have your Bible, please turn to our Old Testament passage for this morning, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. What we're doing during the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the season that we call Advent, is we are preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ that occurred in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And a party is going to start on Christmas Day that is not just a one-day birthday party. That's how yours are. This is a 12-day birthday party. It takes 12 days to celebrate what Madeline Lingle, uh, she wrote um, A Wrinkle in Time, uh, this young adult novel. She called the birth of Jesus the glorious impossible. Isn't that an excellent phrase? So in, in the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, not just Christmas Day, but Christmas, which is a season, all 12 days of Christmas, in the four weeks that lead up to this, the grandest birthday party of them all, what are we doing? We're learning something. We're learning to yearn for Christ to save us, to rescue us. Last week, we learned that we need to cry out for God's rescue to come to those who are suffering from economic injustice. We, we, we learned that we've got to cry out for God to rescue the people in our fair city, in our community, who have experienced kind of being excluded from the production side of the economy. We should stand with them. We should crowd for God to come and to punish those who have leveraged their power and their knowledge to cut them out of a stake in the economy. That was Micah chapter 3. Now, in the passage that Bob read to us this morning, Micah chapter 5, here we come to one of the most famous prophecies in Scripture, and it's a passage through which God has much to say to us this morning. Listen again to Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now remember, Micah lived and wrote in the 8th century before Christ. And this was one of the most traumatic periods in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was at war. That, this is war language, right? Muster your troops. Siege is laid against you. Now, the war they're involved in is a war on two fronts. It's a, a war with two primary battle lines. First of all, we saw a battle line last week. We saw that Israel was at war internally. We focused on this over the last couple of weeks. There was this devastating war going on inside of Israel, and it was the, a war of corruption. And it was primarily in the form of greedy land barons, corrupt judges, and money-grubbing priests all colluding together. And the result 
was a really good um, stock market. The result was an economic boom, but it was built on injustice. The little guy, the poor, were being marginalized from a stake in the production side of the economy. We saw that last week. We, the economic base of this city's success was the exploitation of the weak by the strong. Go back to chapter 3 and listen again to verse 1. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and, and, their, fle- and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that's straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And we saw that this is all about economic injustice, but it's interesting. God looks at economic injustice and he describes it as violence. It's a bloodless war, but it's a war nonetheless. So on the one hand, there's this war going on. We have the leaders of Israel at war against their own people and they're using clever business techniques that the judges are approving of and the preachers are refusing to denounce and they're using this to build the economy. Economic injustice is an act of violence and God hates it. God feels about it the way you would feel about walking into a room and seeing a man chopping another person up, cooking them and eating them. That's the disgust God has toward economic practices that marginalize people from a stake in the production side of the economy. And so we learned last week, we should hate that. We should feel about that the way we would feel if we read an article in the newspaper of an act of cannibalism in this community. That anger and disgust should well up in us and we should turn it into a cry. Come, Lord Jesus, punish these people and restore the victims to a stake in the economy. So that's the war going on internally in Israel. Now remember I said this is a war with two battlefronts. That's not the only war. There's another front. There's another battle. In our passage this morning, it brings us to the other battle line in Israel's war. This is a battle line not going on inside of Israel. This is a battle going on between Israel and another nation. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was on the rise. And we know that by the end of this century, Assyria will conquer Israel. So as we read in Micah chapter 5 verse 1, Muster your troops, O daughter of Jerusalem. Siege is laid against us. On a literal, on a historical level, this is Assyria laying siege to Jerusalem. But here's the trick. The church has long taught us that when you're reading the Bible, you should always know that Jesus is always at hand when you open scripture. This is not a history book that merely gives us an account of an ancient society's religion. 
This is the living word of God, and it is alive today. And when you read the scripture, like Søren Kierkegaard said, you must always say, it is to me this book is addressed. So one of the things we do here is, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, as you and I should think, siege is laid against me. How is siege laid against me? The Assyrian Empire is not outside our door. Neither is Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, or any of the empires that have risen and fallen since that day. But there is a battle we are in. There is a spiritual conflict. There is a siege laid against us. And this is a battle which cuts across all of life. And it's a running encounter between two opposing forces. The kingdom of God. And the kingdom of darkness. And the Assyrian Empire laying siege against Jerusalem was merely one historical manifestation of that battle that is still raging today. And this is an idea that the Bible tells us all the way through it, over and over and over. For example, listen to this scripture from the New Testament, from Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. You see, what we need to hear when we read this, now muster your troops, O daughter of Jerusalem, siege is laid against us, we need to hear many things. And one of the things we hear is, siege is laid against us. And we need to learn to cry out for Jesus, not only to rescue those falling prey to economic injustice, but we need to learn how to cry out for Jesus to rescue us from the siege laid against us, from this fundamental battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, between good and evil. And here's the important point. The battle between good and evil knows no territorial boundaries. There is no safe place to carve off. Jerusalem couldn't say, oh, we're safe from the battle. Christian music cannot say, oh, we're safe from the battle. Christian theme parks cannot say, oh, we're good. Evil is out there. Christian schools cannot say, oh, we are Christian in our education. We're safe from the battle. A Christian home cannot say, I brought Christ into this home. I was baptized in Christ. Therefore, me and my children in this house are safe from the siege. There is no safe place from this siege. This battle knows no territorial boundaries. There is not a moment or a place or an action in your life that cannot fall under siege. It runs right through every area of our lives. It is the opposition between regimes, not realms. It runs through every department of human life and culture. There is a battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, and it cuts right through everything, through our personal lives, our family lives, the art community, politics, education, business, medicine, technology, recreation, construction, city planning, every place of your life. There is a kingdom of darkness assaulting. This is the story. This is what we hear when we hear, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. 
The fundamental spiritual conflict runs right through the heart of every facet of our life. But there's more. It also runs right through the heart of every person. See, that's the thing. It's not just out there. It's in here. It's true that you are either a Christian or you're not. But what we're looking at here is a spiritual battle that does not respect that boundary. If you are a Christian or if you've ever known a Christian, then you know that being a Christian doesn't mean you're not sinful. No, a Christian remains a thoroughly sinful creature, no better in himself or herself than than others. And a Christian can be just as limited and short-sighted and prejudiced as a non-Christian. There is a battle going on at the deepest levels of every sphere of our society and of every heart and life in this room. It is a struggle between submitting to God and rebelling against God. That's the battle. That's the siege laid against you. And you know that, don't you? You know that you're in a struggle. You know that you have been laid siege against. What I'm saying is that the battle is between two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And don't think of of your own temptations as merely a struggle to do a bad thing. No. Your temptation to do a bad thing is a dark, evil power laying siege against you. It's not just about, are you going to be a jerk to your wife or your children or your employees? It is about... Which side of this battle will you give your loyalty to? That's the Christian view of the world. Whether it's a decision about business or what to wear or how to fit in, when you do not pick God's way, you are picking darkness and death. And when we fail to see that that is the issue, we are in danger of binding ourselves to darkness and death. There is a way of living that's futile. It will not work. It will lead to death, not to real life and real living. So that's the battle that we can hear God telling us, muster your troops. Take this battle seriously. But look what happens in verse 2. Oh, it's not all doom and gloom. Verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Last week, See, last week we saw in chapter 3 that God said Jerusalem would be reduced to ruins. That's coming. We know from history it happened. Assyria conquered. In chapter 4 we saw that Israel would be deported. City reduced to ruins. Citizens deported. We know from history that happened. And here in chapter 5 we see that after a long delay a child will be born. And we know from history that that happened. And the birth of this child 
will usher in peace and deliverance. That child is Jesus Christ, born 700 years later. And in nine days from now, at sundown, we will begin celebrating his birthday. And because it's bigger than your birthday, it will go on for one day and two days and three days and 12 whole days. And we'll pull out all the stops. We'll use eggnog and fudge and wine and turkey. If you're really clever, fried turkey, not that baked stuff. And we'll give presents. And this is the birthday party that's so grand, it causes all of us to give presents to others. We'll have wrapping paper and it'll be extravagant. Why? Because our peace, our deliverer, King Jesus was born. And if there was ever a time to go overboard with a birthday party, holy camoly, this is it. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes the extravagant feast that awaits us when Christ makes all things new. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. We've talked about it so many times, but we, we can never get tired of this one. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. That's why you make really good food at Christmas. We're, we're practicing a feast that's going to be really good. A feast of well-aged wine. Not too buck chuck. Of rich food full of marrow. Not some vegan tur turkey thing. Sorry, Emily. Of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Ina. In our church. His 38-year-old daughter died a couple of days ago. God's going to wipe the tears from her eyes. He will remove and wipe away the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's what we're doing at Christmas. This is what we're preparing for. This is why we spend more money than we do at any other time of the year in giving gifts and throwing parties. We are celebrating the birth of Christ in the anticipation of the return of Christ and for 12 days we go for it. This is no glass of room temperature water and cracker kind of Sunday school party. Because Jesus was born all things will be made new. The resurrection will come. And we have the down payment on that in the resurrection of Jesus. And death will be swallowed up in victory. And no woman will ever say to me again as I'm sitting in her house, a parent should not watch their child die. That'll never happen again. We have the down payment on it. The Lord will wipe away every tear and he will swallow up the veil. All things will be put right. Not only the economic injustices, but all of the places where you have given allegiance to death in your own life. All things will be put right. And those who've accepted this gospel, that's the story. That's what it's called. It's what we heard Paul going on and on about in the opening of his letter to the Romans. I'm reading it this morning and I can't even tell where the subject of the sentence starts and the object ends. It's this confusion, this avalanche of him just 
You know, the cheese slid off his cracker. He gets so excited. Those of us who've accepted this great news, this news that is so good, those of us who've accepted that all of this now has been established in principle, and as we live it out in faith, we proclaim this good news in what we say and in how we live. And by this, I mean much more than that our words should be true and our behavior good. I mean that our words should sound like good news. And our lives should smell like good news. That's Micah chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. And now look at chapter 4. Uh, verse 4. Micah 5 verse 4. And he, Jesus Christ, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. Catch it. To the ends of the earth. This little battle going on at the gates of Jerusalem. This little battle going on at the gates of your own heart and life and imagination and politics and business and sexuality. This whole little battle that you're involved in, it is a microcosm of the battle. Your soul in that moment is just one manifestation of the battle going on to the ends of the world. And look what it says. The whole world will belong to God. He's not only going to win the battle in your life. He really is. Your addiction. He really is going to conquer it. The end of this story is hope. Your broken family. He, your, your pains and struggles. He really is going to wipe away the tears. But it's not just you. <laughs> and it's not just me. And it's not just this room. His victory is going to roll out to the ends of the earth. The whole world belongs to the creator. And at the same time, all of reality is still under the curse of, the, of sin. And torn apart by sin. We are still in conflict. Our world is broken. And yet all of reality lies within the loving gaze of Jesus Christ and his plans for redemption. In the words of the great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he put it this way, the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. Being a Christian, you see, is about more than being good and going to heaven when you die. Being a Christian is a way of life based on the conviction that King Jesus that last verse, shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is about more than geography. That phrase, it's not only about, ter about geography ends of the earth, it's about all of reality. Look, don't think that being a Christian is losing touch with reality. No, being a Christian is about ordinary life. It's about your calling. The greatness of Christ to the ends of the earth is the kingship of Jesus over every square inch. Abraham Kuyper, another remarkable Dutch theologian and politician and philosopher and academic and newspaper man from the late 19th century. Abraham Kuyper famously put it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our lives over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. There is not a single thing your eye looks at that Christ doesn't look at and say mine. There's not a single part of your life 
There's not a single cause you're burdened for. There's not a single area of brokenness. There is nothing in the universe that Christ doesn't look at and say, it's mine. It belongs to me. All of it does. That's what it means when it says, to the ends of the earth. You and I, each one of us, we must ask ourselves over and over, this thing I care about, fashion, business, education, housing, this thing that I care about, what does Christ have to say about it? It is a massive mistake to think that becoming a disciple of Christ is to lose touch with the real issues people in our community are really facing. We must come to terms with what it means to live as Christians in Harrisonburg at work, at school, in art, in media, in the marketplace, in education, in business, in politics. There is nothing in our city, there is nothing in your life that you can point to that Christ did not die for and that he is not interested in healing. There are no forces in nature, no laws that control those forces that do not have their origin in King Jesus. And for this reason, it is totally false to restrict Christ to religion. To keep Christ out of politics, out of business, out of art, out of education. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now look at verse 5. And he shall be their peace. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrians. You see, as we turn our face toward the world, toward economic injustice, toward housing, toward business and finance and education, as we turn our face toward the world, the real world, it is a mistake To place so much of an emphasis on your work for Christ in society. That you you neglect the work of Christ in your own heart. He shall be our peace. That's where it starts. The battle in you. Him bringing peace to that. Remember what I've been saying this morning. Learning how to live under the lordship of Christ in every sphere of our life is a, it involves a battle, a real war, a spiritual warfare. And if we were going to go this route, we better be ready. Who sends people in the war that don't have resources for the war? Shortly before Janelle and I and Spencer uh, moved to England, to Cheltenham, England, which was back in 2002 when she was still in diapers and her hair was blonde a young Christian doctor came to Cheltenham the town we lived in and she spoke to our town I've told you this before she had gone to serve several decades before she had gone to serve as a medical doctor in Chile and there she made the mistake of treating a sick person who was an enemy of the government And so the government arrested and gruesomely and brutally tortured and violated her in the ways you can imagine. In Cheltenham, she was talking about this experience and she made the point, 
We need a relationship with God that is adequate to the journey of life. See, some of us are falling from the faith and from our true nature and who God made us to be because we are going into battles unprepared. We must have a prayer life adequate to nurture and sustain all of our public life for Christ. We must have a spiritual journey with Christ that is adequate to nurture and sustain us in the vocations we have. Because our vocations, that is where we find ourselves at the, at the coalface of this battle. There is a huge danger in our social activism if it, is, if it is formed on the presumption that God's work in the world for justice is disconnected from the deep work of God in our lives, in our own hearts, in our own character, our city does not need more jerks crusading for housing. Our country does not need more jerks working for good economic policies. We must not buy into the lie that our work in the world is ever allowed to be disconnected from the work of God in our lives. This takes us back to my first point in the sermon this morning. Our journey out into the world where we labor for the glory and the goodness of God in every sphere of our culture, this outward journey, it will bring us continually to Gethsemane and Golgotha because it is the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And this journey into the world as neighbors, as teachers, as lawyers, as people in the service industry, as parents. And this journey out into the world will bring us into fierce conflict, not with little temptations, but with the heart of darkness. And none of us are adequate to the task without being deeply rooted and deeply nurtured in Christ. It is an urgent matter for us to attend deeply to the development of our own interior relationship with Christ. Embracing and embodying the reign of Christ in our community and in our own hearts is exhilarating, but it is not easy. There is so much work to be done in Harrisonburg, in Virginia, in your sector, in business, in politics, in government, in education, in marketing, there is so much work to be done. There is so much to pray about. Maybe we rise to the challenge. And as we do this, as we embrace Jesus, the King, we will learn to live out the hope of glory. And so we learn in Advent to cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. In my life and in my city. Rescue me. Rescue my city. Rescue this earth. Rescue this environment. Rescue business. Rescue education. Rescue mental health care. Rescue us, God. 
and in my life be born anew. Amen.